Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now Podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on a range of developments within the Beltway and beyond. Uh, Joining me for the conversation, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. So, Shane, it's great to be back with you. Looking forward to catching up, and I know it's been a couple of weeks since we last spoke, so plenty to catch up on. Yeah, and what a remarkable few weeks it's been. And to that point, Shane, I know with respect to Eastern Europe, the tragic events we've witnessed unfold and continuing to develop in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, uh, there's a lot to talk about on a variety of fronts, though as a starting point, I wanted to get your take on President Biden's address. We did hear from the president yesterday, Tuesday, and he did outline an oil embargo against imports of Russian oil to the U.S. Uh, This, of course, a notable escalation with wide-ranging implications to both energy and financial markets. So what's the political significance of this action, Shane, and how are other nations responding with similar actions? Yeah, the Biden administration had been, you know, uh, internally debating this for, you know, days. And, you know, they were kind of in a position where they were damned if they do and damned if they don't. Uh, Damned if they do. Uh, impose this uh, embargo on Russian oil because, you know, as uh, you all listeners probably know, the price of gas has gone up uh, significantly in the past um, few weeks. And this action will further drive those prices up. And politically speaking, you know, in an election year, that is a very tough pill for uh, Democrats to swallow. But, you know, they were damned if they didn't do this because, you know, they, it, it, it is a almost necessary step to push back against Vladimir Putin. It really sets the tone um, to uh, to demonstrate how serious the U.S. is taking this. You know, if you look back historically, Vladimir Putin, you know, didn't think the pushback that he is currently receiving um, would happen this time because historically in his previous invasions in, you know, um, Crimea, and Georgia, um, the pushback wasn't as strong. So, you know, this is important to show him uh, that uh, this is, uh, um, you know, being taken seriously by the international community. And, you know, um, to your kind of last point, you know, the U.K. is following up. They're a little bit slower pace than the U.S. I think they're going to um, uh, ratchet down the importation of uh, Russian oil over the course of 2022. Um, now, for the U.S., we only get um, a fraction of our oil from Russia. I think it's about 8%, and the U.K., about 6%. Now, the rest of Europe gets about 40% of their uh, oil from Russia, so it's going to be hard uh, for them to um, do such an embargo against Russian oil. Um, they'll have very <laughs> uh, scarce energy resources uh, to, to to fuel their economy. So this is going to be very tough on them. And, you know, they have not taken any similar action at this time. Um, But, you know, I think they're going to be exploring other options uh, and how they can continue to push back against um, Vladimir Putin and the Russian regime. Now, President Zelensky of Ukraine, of course, he has been very vocal about expressing thanks to the West, NATO, the U.S., for the support provided thus far, though 
he has been beating the drum, uh, encouraging momentum for that support to continue. So how has the U.S. and NATO allies, how have they been supporting Ukraine in recent days? And is there risk of too much or maybe specific types of support uh, that might trigger a retaliation against NATO by the Russian Federation? Yeah, this is a very uh, tricky one for NATO. And, you know, I think it's also important to level side here is that, you know, when, if you look at one of Vladimir Putin's uh, goals, you know, obviously beside what's going on, uh, his, his invasion into Ukraine, it's, he does not like NATO. And he would love to see NATO kind of dissolve on their own. So he loves seeing friction within NATO members. He loves seeing uh, them uh, feeling, uh, uh, you know, unsecure and questioning the NATO alliance. Um, but, you know, this has a double-edged sword. You're seeing some other countries uh, thinking about joining the NATO alliance, like, you know, Finland right now, uh, because they're feeling unsafe in, in the region. Um, so, you know, NATO, in Vladimir Putin's mind, you know, he, he, he thinks that NATO may be weak. Uh, this could lead NATO being a stronger alliance, and we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, President Zelensky is really looking for NATO to come in. Um, and besides, you know, any humanitarian relief, you know, military uh, systems, you know, weapons, uh, potentially no-fly zone, which could be very meaningful, um, je uh, providing jets to the Ukrainian to fight um, and have stronger air support, which is key to um, a military um, defense. So... You know, NATO, um, it, it's going to be very important to see how NATO responds uh, in the coming days and weeks. So just branching off of that, Shane, you did mention the no-fly zone. I know President Zelensky of Ukraine, he has been very insistent that NATO uh, consider this move. Why the hesitancy and might there be a path forward or is a no-fly zone over Ukraine? Is that off the table from NATO's vantage point? Yeah, NATO right now is no on a no-fly zone because they're concerned that that really sparks a European war, not just a, you know, a Russia-Ukraine war. Um, and you're seeing uh, Vice President Harris uh, traveling right now to Poland to talk about uh, with the Polish government um, about uh, possibly transferring, transferring MiG airplanes to Ukraine. But, you know, this is uh, key and why President Zelensky is pushing air superiority in a conflict like this is paramount. I mean, it's no, if you study any military history, you always know that having the high ground in a conflict is paramount to victory. And, you know, in today's uh, terms, having the high ground is, is also air superiority. Um, so that is really the Achilles heel. You know, if this was just a, a land invasion, pure, straight and simple, you know, Ukraine would, is winning right now. And, you know, would, would, um, it would be a fair fight, you could say. So, you know, this is going to be really important, but it is so delicate because, um, you know, uh, we, we don't want to see this conflict spread beyond Ukraine. And that, and Vladimir Putin knows that. And that's why he's pushing back and kind of threatening, um, World War Three, essentially, that if, if, you know, um, there is this push for a no-fly zone. You are seeing some um, uh, po politicians talk about kind of a limited humanitarian no-fly zone to try and get out uh, innocent uh, civilians. Um, you know, this is uh, tenuous at best because, you know, I, I think uh, 
Vladimir Putin doesn't want to see anything of, of the nature because, you know, it, in his mind, it weakens his hand. Well, a lot of uncertainty at the moment across a variety of fronts and plenty else we could cover with respect to Ukraine and follow up on, though I do want to spend a few moments maybe pivoting to some domestic topics. I recall President Biden did deliver his State of the Union address uh, last week before Congress. I will say it was encouraging to see uh, the in-person attendance, very reminiscent of a 2019, but uh, much attention, of course, was paid to the tragic event ongoing in Eastern Europe, though. Shane, from your vantage point, what are some domestic focuses, priorities of the administration that stood out to you during the address? Yeah, no, uh, uh, that's a great point. Uh, Several points you make there. You know, uh, first, I think it's uh, absolutely important that we do note that he let off, um, you know, the first part of the speech with talking about um, what's going on in Eastern Europe. And, you know, I think he was kind of trying to uh, go after uh, almost a Reagan moment. You know, he didn't quite get there, but, you know, I think it was generally well-received by the American people. Um, and then, you know, after that, he, he did absolutely make his shift to domestic uh, priorities, which was very interesting to me because, you know, um, a lot of them are components of what we've been talking about for, you know, um, almost a year now, uh, the Build Back Better initiative. Um, although he never said the word build back in it better. Um, you know, he seems to be trying to repackage it um, as a newer initiative, but it, it, the speech didn't actually, um, you know, fully foment that transition to a kind of rebranding. It. Um, but so a lot of the components were familiar with uh, the domestic uh, policies, you know, um, spending uh, for uh, um uh, social infrastructure, uh, spending for climate initiatives. We're actually surprised, you know, climate initiatives really didn't get as much play um, in the speech. Um, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was there, but it wasn't there as as a focal point as we thought it would be. Um, you know, I think veterans was a highlight for him and talking about, um, you know, burn pits and cancer rates for veterans and how, do, how is that addressed? Uh, he did... Um, talk about trying to uh, cut cancer deaths in half in the next uh, few years. So I think that's going to be a major initiative for the Biden administration as they try and, um, you know, shift gears in the coming weeks and months. Um, but it was, it was an interesting speech. You've seen uh, President Biden's uh, poll numbers pick up a little, um, but it wasn't, uh, you know, a full turnaround Um for the Biden administration, you know, we, we thought that uh, it would really be a, a speech where he tried to pivot. And he did that, but it really wasn't the full pivot that we were expecting. Well, no shortage of domestic focuses. So thank you for providing some highlights and a take on the address, Shane. Maybe one more topic we can hit on. Uh, we've previously covered the changes to congressional voting maps. And I understand that recently the Supreme Court, they did issue a ruling which carries with it some notable implications to both sides of the aisle. So what can you share with us there? Yeah, the Supreme Court ruled um, or rebuffed Republicans' attempts to block new uh, congressional maps in two states, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Um, this uh, benefits Democrats in both states, really. Um, in North Carolina, a, a state court had struck down a congressional map passed by the GOP legislature. Um, and the end result here is the Supreme Court 
you know, agreeing with that state court. And so instead of um, you're going to kind of probably have um, uh, close to an evenly divided uh, congressional delegation out of North Carolina, um, you know, you'll probably see Democrats and Republicans split the state's 14 House seats evenly um, in Pennsylvania. You know, you uh, the new map mostly uh, was left intact uh, from the previous map uh, drawn by the state Supreme Court. It threw out Republican district lines in 2018. So you have a lot going on here. But at the end of the day, I think for Democrats, this is good news. Um, you know, uh, this potentially will help them, you know, uh, uh, defend some seats in the 2022 election. And, and possibly, um, you know, save them from losing, losing the House. I think at this time it's really early. Uh, I think Republicans still have the edge and the advantage to reclaim the House. But overall in redistricting, you're seeing Democrats uh, come out victorious. And, you know, this is really going to help them in, in the long run. Maybe it doesn't help them in the 2022 cycle, but, you know, maybe in 2024 or 2026. Because remember, House elections all 435 seats are, are up for re-election every two years. Now, the Supreme Court's not done. Um, the Supreme Court is still considering whether to block Wisconsin's new congressional map. So uh, we still have uh, some more to talk about this in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, th- this one is interesting. So appreciate the perspective and speaking to the implications uh, near term and down the pike as well, how this might impact election cycle. So Shane, it was great catching up with you today. Uh, thank you for the insights across a wide range of topics. Of course, plenty here we can follow up on, especially as it pertains to Eastern Europe. So looking forward to catching back up again with you next week. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it, Dan. Thank you, Shane. And again, today we've been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. So as a reminder to our listeners and their clients, please be sure to reference the latest Washington Weekly publication, which can be located on UBS.com forward slash Washington Weekly. The Washington Weekly podcast is part of the UBS in the Now podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific security Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. 
UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements it is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.